Minister, Mayor, Vice Mayor, Mayor of the County, Councillors, dear friends, it's a very great pleasure to be here with you all this morning uh, as we celebrate the life of Mayor John Redmond. While it is very appropriate that the centenary programme commemorating the death of John Redmond should take place in Waterford City, a parallel stronghold which was represented for so many years by John, his son William Archer Redmond, and his daughter in law Bridget Redmond. It is so important that here in Wexford, the town and county with which the Redmond name has been so associated for centuries, that such a commemoration as this is taking place. I was so pleased outside to meet the many different generations of the Redmond family and thank you for meeting me and what a great pleasure it was. May I say also before I make my remarks how indebted I am uh, to Dermot Malidi for his two fine volumes of John Redmond. And also I have to see that there is now such a burgeoning literature uh, on Redmond studies, the book I think it goes on class in this very good book. There are several books, there are five of those early books I think to which which I think Dermot refers to very little. We are very fortunate that after my remarks you'll be able to hear all of these in detail, I'm sure, <laughs> and with enthusiasm. Uh, I think in the first volume of Dermot Malili's book in John Red, on John Raymond deals in its opening chapters with what I had just referred to. Uh, the very strong southeastern Wexford connections uh, of, of the Redmond family. And Wexford has also a special place in the history of our long road to national independence. <coughs> After all, it was here that a republic inspired by the ideas of Thomas Paine and the example of the French and American revolutions was first proclaimed on this island. And such a historical background in the wide sense was important. Indeed, it is interesting that one of the books you have displayed in the library ex 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 exhibition is, in fact, John Redmond's speech on the occasion of calling at 98. And John Redmond was very influenced by the historical context from which he had sprung and the relationship which his forebears had with the struggles for independence and also the full memory of those struggles. As he put it himself, I have been reared in the midst of hills and valleys that witnessed the struggles of 1798, and he went on. I have been taught to regard every scene as a monument to the heroism of our forefathers, and to remember that when I every sod beneath my feet marked a hero's sepulchre. My boyish years had listened to the tales of 98 from the lips of old men who had themselves witnessed the struggles, and I scarcely know a family who cannot tell of a father or a grandfather or some other relative who died fighting at Wexford, Rulat, or Ross. One of my proudest recollections has ever been, as it is today, that in that dark hour of trial, there were not wanting men of my race and name who attested by their lives to their devotion to Ireland. How that devotion to Ireland was expressed, if we are to understand it in a balanced way, <coughs> means recognising that while consciousness of a great wrong created a current of militancy that was radical and at times violent, there was also 
a parallel set of radical tendencies within constitutionalism. Tendencies that often collided. Often collided, too, due to the collision of brilliant personalities. By the latter half of the 19th century, the memory of the 1798 rebellion might have thus both steadily faded as a failed military event in recall, and yet had become at once more vivid for what inclusive possibilities in terms of both source and membership profit. There was a diversity to such constitutional origins and tendencies, and they had an all-island reach. Let us recall that Presbyterian Belfast was the bastion of the Society of the United Irishmen that had furnished both intellectual and material resources for such revolutionary activity. The memory of a glorious resistance had slowly eclipsed in the public mind the radical programme of the United Irishmen, so much so that all of the diverse elements of nationalist Ireland would lay claim to their legacy during the centenary celebrations of 1898. The bloodshed of the 1790s and the punitive response of the British government and those Edmund Burke described as the junto dominating Duncan Castle, who had such easy access to coercive <coughs> and convinced a generation of nationalists that an armed uprising of any size would not only fail, but invite an immediate and terrible retribution. It does say something of the extraordinary political genius that was that of Daniel O'Connell, that he could, in the aftermath of those early terrible decades, assemble a remarkable and wide-reaching coalition of ideas and interests, one that would seek through both parliamentary and extra-parliamentary agitation to fundamentally revise the combination of common law, statute, legal precedent and ideology of that that had become known as the British Constitution. <coughs> a true historiography of the second half of the 19th century, then, when it deals with the relationship between Britain and Ireland, has to deal with all of the tensions, both of the context outside Parliament, land, religion, rights, and also the different strategies, including the many innovations that would be applied within Parliament, to advance the case for legislative independence. The movement of O'Connell, let us recall, represented one of the first great mass movements of European history. It succeeded in dismantling the penal laws and, through its parliamentary representatives, championed a series of liberal reforms, including the abolition of slavery within the British Empire. <coughs> Yet that movement did not, to the great disappointment of O'Connell, achieve what would become the sole of Irish politics throughout the 19th century, the repeal of the Act of Union and the re-establishment of an Irish Parliament. For those interested in libraries, I think as well, that the cartoon history of all of this is particularly informative, revealing as it does the attitudes as it were of the press towards the main participants to whom I have made reference, including the, that, that which appeared in the last ten years. What was the surface as any form of disputation, as it were, on what independence meant was varied, intermittent, and was never clearly defined, 
meaning different things to the different social layers of Irish society. For example, there was a huge distance between the layers of insecure tenants and the consideration of those who envisaged a future membership in what was assumed to be an incontestably enlightening, expanding empire. George Berman had writing from the west of Ireland on a morning that he went to collect his daily paper, writes about how he asked, how has our whole rule gone? To get the reply, to hell with home rule, sure it's the land we're after. <laughs> I think several decades after the death of O'Connor, I think constructed, I think, a constitutional, I think that, that constructing a constitutional politics from this combination of tendencies was a great task of which John Redmond uh, had had to engage. It was a task to which he dedicated his political life, and of course, like Daniel O'Connell and Charles Stuart Prowell, in terms of leadership, he would come in his time to be seen as representing the Irish nation itself. Father, he is now often remembered as a great parliamentarian, both in his mastery of procedure and oratory. He was, let us recall, the leader of one of the great movements of thought and action of the 19th century, one that at its height was capable of wresting from the British Parliament. Concessions have seemed unimaginable to contemporaries, including some of his British contemporaries, and they left tangible results in housing for labourers, university independence, and of course opposition to various forms of coercion acts and several actions in favour of amnesty. When John Redmond took the then parliamentary seat of New Ross in 1881, he was joining a newly revived national movement, one that had, through the new departure, the Land War of 1789 to 1892, brought together some of the diverse stands of Irish nationalism. The struggle for the land, the battle for legislative independence, radical separatism of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which drew on the support and organisation of Irish men and women steeped in the radical democratic politics of the United States, although buried beneath that are further divisions, including the particular forms of political organisation associated with the Irish America. The Irish Parliamentary Party, founded by Isaac Butt, who in his time had valiantly sought to hold together what often amounted to a fractious and often aristocratic caucus, had been transformed under the leadership of Pagnan into a disciplined force that understood but also saw the limitations of the British House of Commons. It was a force that in the Irish National League united parliamentary and extra-parliamentary efforts. Under Pagnan, the class composition of the Irish parliamentarians changed dramatically. <coughs> Only three of the 23 nationalist MPs elected in 1880 were landlords. One contemporary chronicler of the Irish Parliamentary Party described <coughs> in predictably disparaging terms his shock at witnessing the new entrance to the hallowed halls of Westminster. I quote, Penny aligners from New York and Lambert from Mallow and Drumcondra, out of work from half a dozen modest professions, had come in their place 
to earn the wages of Mr. Patrick Egan and Mr. Patrick Ford. Despite emerging from a different milieu to that of journalists such as Tim Healy or Labour's brilliantly informed ones such as Michael Dowd, John Redmond was a wholehearted champion of the rights of tenants and firmly committed to pursuing that policy through parliamentary obstructionism, where he readily joined John Charles, Charles Stuart Campbell, to whom I think he had, had a, he would give an extraordinary loyalty and devotion, something that was the subject of a correspondence between him and Carson, for example. For example, speaking of the campaign trail in New Orleans in 1881, he committed himself to what he called the Holy Crusade, being engaged against landlordism. Famously, it was said that he took his seat, made his maiden speech, and was expelled from House of Commons all on the same evening, <laughs> which is a record of which new, few parliamentarians then and now could or can boast, although some have tried hard. <laughs> he was a brilliant parliamentary orator, described by the colonial civil servant and conservative member of Parliament, Sir Richard Tender. Not indeed as a politician who was not a politician with a natural sympathy for the Irish in peace. Tender described him as fluent without being verbose, eloquent without being bombastic, earnest without being overstrained. But Ed Redmond, I remind again, was also a committed extra-parliamentary activist in the 1880s, supporting the renewal of the land war through the plan of campaign, even against the wishes of the then more cautious Palmer. He was convicted of using intimidating language towards landlords in 1888 here in Wexford and served a period of time in prison. I did find it one of the most charming parts of Dermot Valide's description of John Redmond of his visit to John Dillon, Redmond just having had his prison haircut. <laughs> I think that that book uh, is, a, is, a, is a beautiful book. John Redmond became so associated in the succeeding structure of the collective memory of Irish nationalism, however, with a, a different image, an image of a very particular kind of Irish party MP, overly deferential to both parliamentary procedure and to the authority of the Parliament in Ireland, and that his energy, his courage and his commitment to define landlordism and the legitimacy of the exercise of British power over here in Ireland may not have been given appropriate weight. This is for those who come after me this morning to develop. He was, after all, I suggest, one of the most talented of a remarkable generation of Irish parliamentarians whose radicalism inspired the supporters of democracy both in Ireland and in Britain whose activism was viewed by the establishment as nothing less than a challenge to the rule of British law in Ireland. May I suggest that the decision of John Redmond to stand with Parnell during those fateful days of discord in room, Committee Room 15, was the most defining and revealing of his political career. It took bravery and courage to side with Parnell and the Fenians against the combined influence of the Catholic Church in Ireland and William Glass strong in the Liberal Party in Britain. It took perseverance to remain hot in retrospect, now seems a most unusual alliance of Raymondites and Fenians. The Waterford City by-election of 1891, that Dermot Malik has written about in that first volume, illustrates some of these incongruencies. Redmond's opponent was Michael Davitt, 
the founder of the Irish National Landing. In him, Redmond faced a veteran campaigner in Fenian and a powerful champion of the rights of labour. Yet it was Redmond who was able to draw on the moral support of the city's working class, who, though they may have been unable to vote yet still, had a voice and were able to intimidate and prevent David from speaking. In 1891, Redmond was the radical, and David, much to his chagrin, was presented as the stooge of those Parmel had termed as the English wolves howling for my destruction. <laughs> I should say, as one goes across the literature from this period, one is struck whether one is talking about Dylan, or whether Redmond, or whether one is talking about Parmel himself, or of the many, the many others. I'm struck by the deep division, but also the fundamental courtesies that is contained in the letters and exchanges between them. And that is so impressive. The essential courtesies, it, I have mentioned a, a message between Carson and, and Redmond already, but there are many others, and I'm struck for time. And I won't be developing because I'm leaving to the others as well. Discuss the particular issue, for example of Tom Redman's view on votes for women, given the year that <laughs> Though the two men were then at odds during the panel split, I speak of Dylan and Parnell, Dylan and John Redman. I would like to take this opportunity to highlight an incident in which they were united. One which is an example of great moral political courage. In 1904, the small Jewish community in Limerick, numbering no more than perhaps 35 families, were assailed by their fellow citizens who had been incited by a local priest. Michael Davis and John Redmond were the only two national figures to wholeheartedly condemn the attempted pogrom. By his actions, Redmond was carrying on a tradition of Irish solidarity with the Jewish people, which manifested itself 70 years before in the campaign for Jewish emancipation in which Daniel O'Connor had played a leading role. John Redmond was more than willing to implicitly denounce a priest's abuse of the pulpit. He had, after all, defied the Catholic hierarchy before, in 1888, in response to papal condemnation of the Planet Campaign. It is quite sophisticated, his response at the time. He declared, political interference of any sort they would not more tolerate from the Vatican than from Dublin Castle. The reunification of the Irish Home Rule Movement in 1900 was a consequence of and a response to activism from below in the form of a new organisation, the United Irish League, which sought to reimpose discipline upon all nationalist MPs and to campaign against the new power of the graziers, who were increasingly coming to dominate the post-famine agricultural landscape. And indeed, I must say, some of whom were within the ranks of the United Irish League itself. John Redmond would lead the United Irish Party for the first time in nine, it was, it was the first time in nine years. One that was capable of leveraging the excellent parliamentary campaign of the United Irish League into a parliamentary victory in the Land Purchase Act of 1903. The first substantive provision for land purchase for tenants. This was followed by the Labourers' Acts of 1906 and 1911, both substantial pieces of housing legislation. 
and by another land culture, circa 1909. And when these are all taken together, these pieces of legislation represent the largest transfer of Irish land since the 1690s and one of the largest housing programmes ever attempted on these islands. The reunited Nationalist Parliamentary Party that emerged in the 1900s was strong enough to detach itself from the reliance on the Fenians, although the historian James McConnell has estimated that nearly a quarter of the Nationalist MPs were and had been at some time or another former Fenians. A new generation, however, <coughs> exemplified perhaps most of all by Sean McDermott, the national organiser of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, protégé of Tom Clark, had eschewed engagement with the Parliamentary Party, choosing its state, the cultural and emancipatory promising space, the emancipatory possibilities of cultural activities. And then long decades of a hegemony from a particular source and the replacement of the Athenian contingent with the ancient order of Hibernians in the 1900s had lent a certain lassitude to the Irish party. Indeed, in terms of its representation in local government in Dublin, it had come to be, ironically, a party of landlords. The distinctive political formation that Parnellism represented and that John Redmond led in the 1890s, a coalition of urban artisans and shopkeepers and labourers, many of whom were schooled in Athenian culture, drifted apart in the reunited Irish party. And of course, a new syndicalist trade union movement led by Jim Larkin had emerged to organise workers in urban areas, epitomised, of course, by the battle for union recognition that occurred in this town in 1911. But yet there are very significant differences between the response to it and itself of the Wexford lockout of 1911 and the Dublin lockout of 1913, both in terms of business, public and clerical support and reaction. In this decade of centenaries, we are all invited to recall what has come to be known as an Irish Revolution. We have now come to use that appellation, Revolution, in recognition of the rupture that occurred in the years between 1916 and 1923. A rupture that was a mixture of heroism, some disastrous military decisions, new alliances, for example, in opposition to an imposed conscription of 1918, shared responses to the executions of 16. The Irish people have seen the rise in Europe of new ideas, and also I think that they have experienced these through cultural innovations which are readily enough. <coughs> and the possibility, and I emphasize the possibility, of not only a transfer of power and authority between classes, genders and generations in Ireland, but of an idealism that could be turned into practice or indeed later discarded in favour of a pragmatic adjustment to new and different pro property classes. In Britain, Finn of Britain had itself come to be gripped by a new imperial spirit, one that had grown in strength since the crowning of Queen Victoria's Empress of India, a decision that Isaac Bosch and his colleagues had challenged in the House of Commons. Politicians such as Cecil Rhodes and Joseph Gentleman <coughs> dreamed of an imperial federation of self-governing white settler states ruling over the rest of the British Empire. 
Irish parliamentarians, including some former Fenians, were not immune to mimicking such sentiments. And by the time of the Third Home Rule Bill, many of the critics of the Parliamentary Party could be forgiven for believing that Home Rule within the Empire had become, indeed become the neighbor's ultra for the party. This belief was given suffer by the wholehearted support given by to the British war effort during the First World War by John Redmond, a decision that much like the decision of the Socialist and Social Democratic parties in Europe to support their respective national war efforts will continue to be matters of great controversy and correctly of debate. John Redmond and the Irish Party could not contain the new forces that emerged during our revolutionary period, no more than the polite old rulers of Isaac Buckstown could have concluded. John Redmond's father, William, could contain the enthusiasm of John Redmond and his generation for land reform and aggressive parliamentary and extra-parliamentary confrontation with British authorities. The demands for the rights of labour, for the rights of women, for a separate, independent Irish Republic would sweep away the Irish Party. They were contained for a short time in the political formation of the Sinn Féin, but it too dissolved in the crucible of the terrible civil war, unable and in some cases unwilling to represent the multiple ideas and interests which gave it life. The independence of our country was not, I suggest, and I believe could not be won by parliamentary manoeuvres alone. The Irish party who thwarted British authority so successfully in Ireland through the land war and the plan of campaign attest, demonstrated by their actions that they were never really fully convinced of this either, as the long and unremitting national liberation struggles waged by the nations of the global south throughout the 20th century shown, great empires do not yield easily. Our own war of independence was as necessary as any of those wars of national liberation fought by other peoples. Yet, let us recognise that there was no simple or linear path to our national self-determination. And it was the Irish party carried the struggle for very many years, winning respect and admiration for the cause of home rule. The constitutional advocacy and legacy informed the practices of the new state. For example, it is to be reflected, I think, in the form which the 1922 Constitution took. When I addressed the House of Parliament in Westminster four years ago, I spoke of the inspiration I took from standing in a place where for more than 100 years many dedicated Irish parliamentarians represented not only the interests and aspirations of the Irish people, but also contributed to the development of British democracy and spoke in favour of so many humanitarian causes abroad. Today, I am delighted as President of Ireland, Uthra to have this opportunity to participate in the commemoration and tribute to one of the greatest of those Irish parliamentarians, a patriot and a courageous politician, who sought out at all times, often carrying the burden of illness and paying heavy personal costs, to do what he thought was right in the best interest of our people. The southeast of Ireland was always in John Redmond's heart, and thus it is so appropriate that he be honoured here indeed, as his great uncle was in Wexford. Mila Gutierrez, Gourmand.